All right. Morning, everybody. Let's begin with our hymn. Grab a hymnal. Hymn 521. We're going to sing stanzas one and stanza six. The first and the last stanza of 521. 521. All right. Christ the Lord of hosts, unshaken by the devil's seething rage, thwarts the plan of Satan's end, wins the strife from age to age, conquers sin and death forever, slams them in their steel. Send your angel legions when the foe would us enslave. Hold us fast when sin assaults us. Come then, Lord, your people save. Overthrow at last the dragon. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray, Almighty and everlasting God, by your gift alone your faithful people render true and laudable service. Help us steadfastly to live in this life according to your promises and finally attain your heavenly glory. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, the congregation at prayer. <clears throat> Verse of the week from Nehemiah, chapter 9. Let's speak this together. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. Okay, uh, there's some things about the translation of this verse uh, that you're going to want to know about just in this opening phrase. You alone are the Lord. Lord is in all capitals here, which means what? Yes, it's the Trinity, but specifically when it's in all capitals, it refers to the name of God, Yahweh. When the Hebrew says Yahweh, it's different than when the Hebrew says the word Lord. So you alone are God. You alone are I am. So this is what I talk about when I tell you what I am means and why God is named I am. It's this right here. You alone are. You could stop it right there. You alone are. God alone is. I alone am. Okay? That's who God is. When God is, nobody else can be. When God is God... Nobody else can be God. You alone are the Lord. And what does the Lord do? Well, he made 
heaven. He makes the heaven of heavens. He makes all of the hosts of heaven. He makes the earth and everything in it, the seas and everything. And what does he do with all that he has created? He preserves them all. And as we'll hear in the creed in a couple weeks, all this he does out of divine fatherly love, uh, goodness, and mercy. Uh, okay, there is no merit in creation that deserves from God the preservation that he continues to give. He gives preservation because of his love, because of the fact that he is Father, because he has made and because he takes care of that which he has made. Let's speak this again. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. Okay, catechism is from the creed. What is the first article of the creed? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? I believe that God has made me of all creatures, that he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and all my senses, and still takes care of them. Okay, uh, I don't have many things to say about this, but first of all, I want you to see my reason and all my senses. You can say that God has given you your reason and your senses. He has given you your will and your mind, which is not something that he has given to the beasts of the field. You are different than an animal. You are not chimpanzees or cattle. And even though you are called sheep, you are not sheep. You are above creation. You have dominion over creation because you are one who has reason, will, uh, and senses that the uh, animals do not have. And God still takes care of you, all, all the things that he has given you, your body and soul and all things. Now this is um, just like the verse from Nehemiah that he continues to preserve them all. Now it's on the local level though. In Nehemiah, He's, the prophet says, well, you've created this entire creation and you continue to take care of everything in creation. Here, in the small catechism, Luther is saying, you have created all creation, yes, but you've also made me. And you've made in me a little creation. Look at how complicated the human body is. Look at all of the intricate uh, events that take place within the body. It's a little universe in there. It's a little creation in there. Every one of you is a little creation, a little microcosm of the cosmos. And all of the things that are within you, body and soul, God continues to preserve. Uh, now this should bring to mind, first of all, the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. It should also bring to mind the Ten Commandments. The second table of the Ten Commandments, let's say Commandments 7, uh, Commandments 9 and 10, any commandment that has to do with goods, all of that ties in with this. And also the first table of the law. Why the first table? The relationship that goes up and down because God is taking care of you. Because it's between you and God and he is preserving you. Questions? 
Okay, children, you can depart. Go downstairs for your the beginning of a new Sunday school year. Okay. We're back to our regularly scheduled programming here. Um, we're on this handout. We're talking about the law. We're talking about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments being your best friend and uh, not your enemies. And I don't know if you remember or not, the last time that we talked about this, it's been two weeks. And I know how my memory works. And two weeks is a long time. Um, we talked a little bit about love and obedience. You hear from, there's a great quote from Karl Lagerfeld about love and obedience, love and discipline. They're really not different. They're the same thing. So when we talk about obeying the law of God, is it a burden? Well, no, it isn't. And, and I re recall that the example I gave was uh, in a relationship, if somebody ever has to say this, if you really love me, you'd wash the dishes for me. <laughs> and if you don't wash the dishes, then I'll know you don't love me. Okay? It, in a relationship, that's never the way that love works. You don't wash the dishes because you want to earn the love or because you're afraid of the punishment that's going to take place if you don't wash the dishes. You wash the dishes because you've been asked to wash the dishes and because when you love somebody, obeying them is not a hard thing. It's a natural byproduct of love. Uh, okay, so uh, there's a great quote from Karl Lagerfeld where he talks about that, but you don't have to believe the secular authorities if you don't want to because uh, James uh, has also spoken in his epistle and he says just that. The Ten Commandments are not a burden. Now how many times in your entire life as Lutherans have you ever heard the phrase, the Ten Commandments are not a burden to you? Because <laughs> I bet you I can count on one hand how many times you've heard it. But that's what James says. It's in black and white, James chapter 5. Right at the beginning. It's not a burden to you. So again, we come back to this question of how can this be? How can it be that this thing that is supposed to be so bad and this thing that's supposed to be so horrible to us and this thing that's supposed to do nothing but beat us down into the ground and tell us how horrible we are, how can it be that that's not a burden? How can it be that this is actually a good thing? That there's some gold to be found there? Okay, so um, I just want to continue there uh, from that point then. We've looked at James. We know it's not supposed to be a burden. We talked about the Garden of Eden. Is there law and gospel in the Garden of Eden? Okay, but when? Well, the law to start with was God told them not to eat forbidden fruit. Okay. The gospel was that God Place it. It's like okay. When I was a little kid, and Morris was even a little 
with a shotgun. Dad took a shotgun there for whatever reason. And we were told never to touch the shotgun. Mm -hmm. And that was law. Don't touch the shotgun. But it was also gospel because if you touched the shotgun or you picked it up and something happened, you could be hurt. So there was the law in that kids weren't supposed to play with the shotgun, but there was also the gospel that they they loved us and didn't want us to be hurt with that. Sure. Okay, so in the garden, I'm slipping here. <laughs> the law was was there to God told them not to do this. That was the law. But then he also provided for them without the, there was everything there. Mm -hmm. He loved them and so sure. God. Yeah, okay. I'm going to, you make a good point. But I'm not quite right. I know. I'm, yeah, I'm going to contest your answer. But I'm, I want to commend you though because the example of the shotgun is a really great example. It's like the one that I give about the line at the Grand Canyon and the big sign that says, do not step across this line. Is it law or is it gospel? It depends on what side of the line you're on. Don't touch the shotgun. Is it law or is it gospel? I don't know. It depends on if you've touched the shotgun or not. Okay? Uh, so what do we call it when the law and the gospel are combined together coming at you simultaneously like that? Think of it like a sword that has two edges. It can cut either way. And the sword is what? What is like a double-edged sword? The word. Yes, the word. So when the law and the gospel are together, think of the double-edged sword. It's just called word. So the command, I'm going to put that in quotes, the command, don't touch the shotgun, is really the word, don't touch the shotgun. The command, don't step across this line, is the word, don't step across this line. Because it's both. It's law and gospel together. And every word can be used two ways. Remember that. Remember that. Every word can be used two ways. God saying, don't do that, can be God helping you, and also God chastising you for doing the thing he told you not to do. Now, all of this then is to say, in the Garden of Eden, there isn't a concept or an idea of law and gospel. There's only one thing, and that is the word. Adam and Eve live by the word of God. And I'm going to paraphrase God here when he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, because he basically says this, hey, it's really nice to have you here. I'm your father. I'm going to take care of you while you're here in this garden. Look at how great this is. Isn't this a beautiful garden? And you can eat anything you want. This entire garden is here for you, because I love you. There's just one catch for the moment. There's a couple trees here. You're not quite ready to eat that yet. And when it's time for you to eat of that fruit, then I'll tell you, and we'll go there together. But for right now, eat of anything else and enjoy life. That's what God says in the garden. And they live by his word. If you don't believe me that they live by the word, all you have to do is look at Genesis 3. Because when Satan tempts Eve, her first response is, 
the Lord God has said. Well, but, but he says we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't even look at it. We should just content ourselves with this stuff for right now because we're not ready for that. And then you see the switch from living by the word to living by the self. Because the first response is, well, but God has said we shouldn't. And the second response is, when she saw that with her eyes that the fruit was pleasant and good. Well, there's no more God in that. Now it's all me. Remember, it's never about you. So don't let it be about you. Anytime you think it's about to be about you, fight it. When your eyes start to curve in, when, they, when you become an ingrown human being, rip yourself out of yourself. Put your eyes back to the place where they need to be. Put your eyes always on Christ, because your eyes always need to be looking outward and never inward. The eyes of Jesus are going to look inward. They're going to look into you. And the eyes of Jesus are a whole lot better at looking into you than your eyes are. And if you want Jesus to look into you, go out and look at the icon. Because those are some piercing eyes and they'll stare right into you. Jesus is going to look into you. Let him do his job. All he has asked you to do is to look at him. So they live by the word. Now the word becomes this double-edged sword once they've crossed the line at the Grand Canyon. Once they've reached out and touched the shotgun. Now all of a sudden the word doesn't just, isn't just this word that says, hey, I'm here to... You're going to live and everything's going to be really great. Now it is. Well, I wanted everything to be great. And now the word has to be something else to you. Because you've trespassed. Um, there's a really great quote that I just ran across. This is from one of the Jewish... Uh, I think it's one of the Talmuds. Which are the old commentaries on the text of the Old Testament. So basically the Jewish scribes would look at it and uh, it'd be sort of like if you have the Concordia Self-Study Bible when you follow along and it has all the notes about, well, when this is being said, it means blah, 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 blah. And if you want to learn more, look at this, blah, 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 blah. Well, what the, Jew, the Jewish rabbis would do is they'd look through scripture and they'd say, oh, I understand what's being said here and they'd write little comments. This is this, this is this, this is this, this is this. And they'd look at a, the narrative of scripture and they'd say, oh, well, this is what it means here. So I'm going to add a couple little lines in here for explanation. Well, then the Talmuds come out and you can, you can find them and you can read them. And they insert some things. Um, but it's really interesting. So in the garden, what the Talmud says is, God puts man in the garden and he says, please don't eat from this fruit. Because if you do that right now, you're just not ready for it. And creation's not ready for it. And if you do it, you're going to mess creation up. This is a paraphrase, by the way. This isn't the language that they used. I don't remember exactly. So, um, if, if you eat of it, you're going to mess things up. And nobody who comes after you is going to be able to fix what's been messed up. And I really don't want it to be messed up because I want you to live the best life you can. So don't let it be messed up. Which is kind of an interesting thought when you think about what, you know, what Luther does is often he'll paraphrase what God says. Um, you can look at it in the front of the hymnal. Christian questions with their answers. It's right in there. When God says this, it is as if he says this. 
and he explains it. Well, that's what the Jewish rabbis did. When God says, do not eat of this fruit, it is as if he says, listen, I love you, I love creation, I love everything about all of you, I want you to live well, I don't want anything bad to happen for you, or to you, I'm your dad. I want to take care of you. I want to steer you away from the bad things. I want to keep you held firmly in the good things so that you can live the best life you can live. So you can be as comfortable and as happy as you possibly can. And you're not ready for that. And I don't want this to be screwed up for you. So please, 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 just don't worry about it right now. Because the, nobody who comes after you will be able to make it right. And that's kind of neat, because what happens to everybody who comes after them, they're all drenched in the stinking, rotten filth of sin that is passed down again and again and again, all through time. Then Nobody who comes after them can fix what's been wrong. It's one reason why when Jesus comes, he has to be a man. Nobody can fix this, except for me says God, so I will become man and I will go and I'll fix it for you because I'm your dad and when you've messed up, I'm going to come and I'm going to help you and I'm going to take care of you, okay? All this about God being father, it's important. This is why you should never listen to anybody or take them seriously like the ELCA when they talk about God as mother. Oh, it doesn't really matter. I'll think about God however it makes me feel best. And I really would prefer to think of God as a mother because I don't get a lot of comfort from thinking of him as a father. Well, if God is mother to you, then he means nothing to you because all of what Scripture tells you about God, about how he functions as a father, is thrown away. And then he's not God to you anymore. All of this stuff matters. It also matters that you are sons. Well, you know, neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female in Christ. So, you know, you can be children. If we're going to be politically correct, right, we'll be children because we're not going to use gendered language. I don't want to bind any of you because I don't know how you prefer to refer to yourselves. I don't know what pronouns you've chosen. I don't know what gender you decided to be whenever you made your choice. But I'll respect it and I'll just call you children instead, okay? See, that's not the way that the church works. It's not the way that God works. It's not the way life works. If you're, see, so this is, and this is applicable especially for women, right? Because what do you want to do? You want to say, well, I'm a daughter of Christ. I'm a daughter of God. Okay, sure. Uh, you are in the sense that you are a woman and you belong to God. So yeah, I mean, he's your father, you are his daughter, but there's a deeper reality here, and that is this. Who gets the inheritance? Sons. The son. So if you say, no, 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 thanks, but no thanks, I don't want to be son, I want to be daughter, then you're out, and you've removed from yourself the inheritance that is yours to be if you are the son. Here's the other point. When you're brought to the waters of baptism, who do you put on? Christ. Okay? When you go to the font, you put on Christ, or rather, Christ is put on you. And Christ is the Son. So when God looks at you, He doesn't see you for who you are. He sees you or on your own. He doesn't see you for who you are on your own. He sees you for who you are in Christ. So He doesn't see your sins. He sees the blood of His Son. 
He doesn't see your rags. He sees the glorious white robe of his son. It's like the prodigal son. Every time you come to the font, it's like the prodigal son. The father running out to you, scandalous. No rich, wealthy fathers run out to meet guests. But this one does, and he runs out to meet you, and he puts the ring on your finger, and he clothes you. So when God looks at you, he sees his son, and that's a good thing. So if you say, I don't really want to be called son, well, then you've said, I don't really want to be a baptized Christian. I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to do any of the things that Christians do or acknowledge any of the things that Christians are supposed to acknowledge. It's the same, it's the same as saying, well, yeah, I, I want to be a Christian, but I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Okay, well, you want to be a Christian and you want to follow Jesus. You just don't want to go to any of the places where Jesus goes. Sounds like you're going to be a really great disciple. <laughs> okay, that's what it is. Yeah, well, Jesus is all around me. He's everywhere. I don't need to go to church to get Jesus. Water's all around you. Where do you go to get a drink? You have to go someplace to get a drink. You have to go someplace where the water is there for you. Well, yeah, Jesus is all around you and he's always with you. But you have to come to the place where Jesus is for you. And where he comes to you concretely in water, in word, and in body and blood. You can't get that anywhere else. Okay? So... There is a relationship at play here. And the law is all about relationship. And we'll, there's, we have a whole section in the study to talk about relationship. What does it mean that it's relationship? But first we have to talk about your life. Because you're in this relationship. You're, you're living a new life. You weren't, you're not as you once were. So... You, uh, you live differently. You have to order your life. Um, you do the things that Jesus does, not because you're coerced into doing it. It's not like Jesus has a whip in his hand, sitting on his throne, saying, Faster! Now do these commandments. Now jump through this flaming hoop. Yes! You're not animals in a part of some kind of a divine three-ring circus. He's not giving you meaningless, trivial tasks to accomplish purely for the sake of his own entertainment. Everything that he's giving you is for your own good. So the law then orders your Christian life. You follow the law because Jesus loves the law, because Jesus is the law. Love and obedience are the same thing. So when Jesus gives you a law, you say, okay. When Jesus say, hey, Follow me over here. I've got something really good I want to give you. Follow me over here. Do you stamp your feet and say, I was going to, but since you told me to follow you, I'm not going to just to spite you. <laughs> when the starving person comes to your door and you say, you haven't eaten in weeks? Well, come in, sit at my table and eat. Does he say, never mind. You didn't ask me. You told me. So now I'm not going to eat. <laughs> it's ludicrous. It's just silly. I mean, come to my table. Oh, yeah. Follow me. Yeah. Do this. Okay. Live your life this way. Sure. That's what it is to be a Christian. Faith agrees. Now you see how all this starts to go together. Faith agrees. The only word of the Christian that you ever need to know is amen. 
Because that's the life of the Christian, summed up in one word. Jesus says something and you say, Amen. I agree with what you say, Jesus. Sometimes you don't understand what he's saying or why he's saying it, but you always say Amen to it because you always know that Jesus is never going to hurt you. He's always with you, he's always for you, and he's never going to hurt you. So when he wants you to do something, when he says, Hey, follow me here, do this, do that, live your life this way, you say, Amen. And it's not difficult, or it shouldn't be. The life of faith isn't difficult for the regenerate man because love and obedience are the same thing. It's not a burden to live that way. Now, you know, of course, uh, you also have a little bit of unregenerate man still in you, and uh, that guy sort of kicks a lot. Kicks and drags his feet and stomps around, and, and you try really hard to drown him every day, and somehow he still manages to swim back up. He's always got that one last little breath of air that he holds on to. He's always coming back up to the top. So the Christian life is always one of st uh, striving. That's when I, when I preach or if I'm teaching and you hear me say something about striving after holiness, that's the language of combat, of work. Because you know that you're never going to quite get there but it doesn't mean you don't try. Okay, so um, let's look at a couple places here. Ordering your life. This is what this is about. The law is going to help you to order your life. Really, the two things that you need to worry the most about as a Christian are ordering your life around prayer and the Eucharist. That's what matters the most in your life. Okay, um, prayer and the Eucharist. And by default, baptism, because... You can't order your life around Christ or any of the things he gives you if you've not been baptized. So that's a prerequisite of the Christian life. But once you are, have entered into the Christian life, how do you order your life? Well, you order it around prayer. Take the congregation at prayer home. Do it at your house over the week. Or do something else, but read scripture and pray. Make it a daily habit, preferably morning and evening. The first thing you do when you wake up, as Luther says, make the sign of the cross. Um, make the invocation and pray a morning prayer. Last thing you do before you go to bed, make the sign of the cross, pray an evening prayer. And read the Bible. And then, you know, come to church. Come to church, come to the Eucharist regularly. You need food. Because you're the starving man that Jesus is inviting into his house. And it's an invitation, not a command. It's not about what you have to do, it's about what you get to do. No husband says, well, shoot. Do I have to kiss my wife again today? Well, doggone it. Do I have to tell my wife I love her today? Rats. Okay? No husband says that. Every husband wakes up and says, boy, a whole new day where I get to love my wife. A whole new day where I get to say I love you to my wife. A whole new day where I get to kiss my wife. Okay? It's a privilege and it's an honor. It's a joy. It's not a burden or a command or this shackle. That's, that's the ball and chain analogy. See, it's not that. You're not shackled as if the rest of your life is going to be nothing but hellfire and brimstone. Okay, so Psalm 1. Just going to look at Psalm 1, 1 and 2, the first two verses. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, okay. Now, if you want to know what this, these first two verses mean, then read Psalm 119. That's the one that has like a thousand verses and it goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. It's a really big, big, long psalm, okay? But that whole psalm, 119, is basically a commentary on Psalm 1. Specifically, these first two verses. So if you really want to know what it means to love the law of the Lord and what it means to be the blessed man, look at Psalm 119. Okay? We're not going to do that here. But take it home and look at it. Okay? But now here's the thing. This, the first word of this first verse should remind you of something really important. What should it bring to your mind? The first word. Or the first two words. Or the first four words. There's a pattern. And it comes into play later on. I'll give you a hint. If you know your Bible. Or if you want to cheat. Matthew chapter 5. 1 to 11. I see some of you cheating. I got that. <laughs> Oh, so there's a pattern here that's being followed, okay? In the New Testament, Jesus is following the pattern, and I want you to see it because we're going to connect them. Yes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed is the man who follows the way of the Lord. Ooh, look at that. It's like it was intentional. Kind of cool. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers, mockers, the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and his law. On his law he meditates day and night. Now, who's the man? Think of John. Think of Pontius Pilate. Who's the man? This, isn't, this is a Sunday school answer, folks. We are. Hmm? No. Jesus. Ecce homo. Behold the man. Now, anytime you see stuff in Scripture about something, 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 the man, the man who is wise does these things. Okay? So, like, you look at Proverbs. The man who is wise does these things. Blessed is the man who does these things. If you are a wise man, you do this. Here's what the wise man looks like. The man is Jesus. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Now look around you in the world. Who is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly? Who is the man who doesn't ever sin? Who meditates on the law of God day and night? Who never does anything wrong? Who is the paragon of all virtue? Give me his name because I want to meet him. Because I haven't found one yet. Okay? There's only one man. And that's Christ. Now you're not wrong, Bill. You're not wrong. You're, you're just ahead of the game. <laughs> because, <laughs> because who are you in Christ then? You are the man because you wear the man. Because the man is in you. The man is outside of you. You live by the man. Okay? You are the man then. In Christ you are the man. The verse of the week for last week. Uh, no, two weeks ago. Uh, well, I guess I don't remember how many weeks ago, but to live, uh, living in Christ. We talked about Christ being your life. 
All things can be torn away from you. It doesn't matter. Because to live is Christ. Because you have a new life now. Exactly. All things that I've gained I consider to be loss. For the sake of Christ Jesus. Okay? So he is the man. And because he is the man, you are the man. Now, the, the talk about man, the talk about walking, the talk about way, all of this is really important too. Because you are on a journey. You're walking the way. But who is the way? Christ is the way. Christ is leading you on the way. He's the light to the path of the way. He's the word that you're getting on the way. And he's your partner on the way, walking and holding you. And when you fall down and when you take a step off the path, he's there to say, whoop, whoop, whoop. Hold on a second. Let's get back over here. Okay? That's Christ for you. Now, um, when you look at the Beatitudes then, and he says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, who is he talking about? He's talking about himself. The Beatitudes are Jesus' job description. So I, I told you the Ten Commandments are... Uh, so uh, when Jesus gets up in the morning and he wakes up and he gets up out of bed and he goes into the bathroom to brush his teeth and he looks in the mirror, what does he see looking back at him? He sees the Ten Commandments looking back at him. And then when Jesus goes to work and there's the thing that has job expectations... When he looks at that, what does he see? The Beatitudes. Okay? The Beatitudes are Jesus' job description. The Ten Commandments are the reflection of Jesus. They are the character of God. So uh, all of this then means th for you that when you follow Jesus, when you go the way that Jesus goes, when you say amen to the things that Jesus says, when you do the things that Jesus does and speak the things that Jesus speaks, you also have the Beatitudes as your job description. You are to be meek and humble and peacemakers. You are to seek the lost. You're to be Christians. You're to be like your master. But also then to have your delight in the law of the Lord. Because the law of the Lord is your master. Jesus is your master. He is the law. He is the law. He's the job description. He's in all. So if the Ten Commandments are frightening, if they're a burden, if they scare you, and if they exist only to kill you, to crush you into the dirt, to spit on you, then that also says Jesus only exists to crush you, spit on you, hurt you, beat you down. And that's not why Jesus is here. You see? Questions? Okay, I'm glad that you're grasping all of this. Okay, so you delight in the Word of God, because remember, we talked, you know, somebody at Moody said that they were going to call it the Ten Commandments instead of the Ten Words which is a snide and uncharitable joke about evangelicals because the real thing is that and there was an editor a long time ago who put in the word commandment because it's in the small catechism too. Whoops, sorry folks, Luther did something wrong. 
used the wrong word. Shouldn't be commandments, it should be words. But that's okay. No harm, no foul, all right? But the only reason that I emphasize this is because if you look at it only as commandments, then they're bad for you. But if you look at it as word, then it's all things for you. Then it's the, it becomes for you the character of God. If it's nothing but a command, an order, then there's somebody that's over you like this. Yeah, do it better. Come on, step it up. And, uh, you know, that's when you need it, you'll get it. That's part of what it means for God to be father. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis has a great quote where he says that God is love, yes. But that means that by definition, God is more than kindness. Love is more than kindness. So don't get me wrong. When I talk about the Ten Commandments as being Jesus, when I talk about the Ten Commandments as being good for you, as being your best friend, that's fine. It doesn't mean that the Ten Commandments are only ever going to be like eating candy, sweet and enjoyable. Because a lot of the time, love is not sweet and enjoyable. And anybody who's ever been a child or had parents already knows that love doesn't always mean hugs and kisses and sweets. <laughs> I sure do. Okay. Yeah, Bill. Um, going back many years, the, in confirmation classes, the commandments were taught a lot of times. Uh, the law aspect of the commandment, not the love. I mean, uh, as I recall it, yep. it wasn't. Well, and here's the thing. If the Ten Commandments are only ever taught as law, as you're going to shape up or so help me. You better not steal from your neighbor. You better not think any bad thoughts about any. If that's all it is, then, well, yeah, it is frightening. It is scary. It is crushing and bad. But it isn't all that it is, and that's not what it has been for Lutherans, even. This is one of the great things about Luther's explanation to the Ten Commandments. It's something people don't really think about. Confirmands don't think about it when they're forced to undergo memorization. <laughs> but because uh, they're focused so much on the words. And a lot of the times pastors just completely skip over it too. But there's two parts. To every explanation that Luther gives, there's two parts. Except for the first commandment. Because the first commandment doesn't need one. Fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Is that law or is that gospel? Yeah, see, here we go again. Here we go again. It's a trap. If you ever hear the question, now is this law or is this gospel? It's always a trap because you can never choose. That's like saying this. Um, I'm your father and I love you. Let me be your father. Is that law or is that gospel? <laughs> You just can't. That's what the first commandment is. Okay, so Luther doesn't need two explanations there. But every other commandment has two parts to the explanation. Do you recall what they might be? This is the quiz. The, it's 323 in the hymnal if you want to look. I think that's where the catechism starts. By the way, this is why every household should own a hymnal. Everything you need is in the hymnal. It's got your daily services. It's got 
a, a whole year's worth of psalms and readings. It's got all the hymns in it, if you want to sing hymns. It's got a whole bunch of prayers in it. It even has the small catechism in it. Everything you need, right at your fingertips. You can also get it on an app for you tech-savvy folks that want to read off a screen. But, uh, no, here's the thing. Two parts. The first one is, well, you shouldn't do X, Y, and Z. You should try and stay away from that. Refrain from doing those things. But the second part is, but do these things. Live this way. So not only is it just giving you prohibitions, it's also giving you tasks to do. How to order your life. It's all about ordering your life. When your life is ordered by Christ, when you allow your life to be ordered by Christ and you stop fighting him, then you realize that he's got your best interests at heart. Follow him where he goes. Say amen to him. Order your life around prayer and the Eucharist. That's what he'd have you do. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's reassuring. <laughs> yeah, because I'm 76 years old and I've read the commandments 10,000 times, but, but you're making a point that I never thought about. And, I'm, and I, the first one I looked at was the seventh commandment says you should not steal. It says we should fear love God that we don't take our neighbor's money or possessions. But the last part of it is the love. But help him improve and protect his possessions and his income. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know, everybody thinks the seventh commandment, do not steal. And they stop right there. Don't steal. But that's that's only half of the explanation. Yeah. And, but rather do what it needs to be done to take care of your neighbor in that aspect of it. Yeah, see, it's all about ordering your life. It's yeah. all about having never, you focused on where you need to be focused. Never, never thought of and the great thing about those explanations, here's the other great thing, and again, we're going to get to all of this, because if you've looked at the handout, I mean, I have a whole chart, all the Ten Commandments, what they say and what it is as if God is saying there, and we'll get there and, you know, eventually. Um, but one of the things is the explanation for every single one of the commandments begins the same way. You should fear and love God. So are you going to take care of your neighbor because you think your neighbor's really great and because you like your neighbor? No, you're not. Because most of the time your neighbor is a scumbag and you wish that he would trim his hedges or take his trash out or make his lawn look a little nicer. Or keep his stuff on his side of the yard, okay? Your neighbor's a scumbag and you don't like him. So you're not going to take care of him if it were left up to you. You're going to take care of him, though, because God takes care of him. Because Jesus takes care of him. Jesus loves your neighbor. And because you go where Jesus goes, you love your neighbor, too. Not because he deserves it, but because Jesus has given him undeserving love. You go where Jesus goes. Jesus doesn't have any enemies. That means you don't get to have any enemies either. And as long as you think to yourself, I will never hate another person, I will never make that person my enemy, you never will have an enemy. It's easier said than done, though. But the point is being made here that it's all about Christ. The explanation to the Ten Commandments, it's all about Christ. You don't follow them because you want to be really good. You don't follow them so that God gives you the gold sticker for the day. Hey, 
Well done. I'm so proud of you. Okay. You don't do them so that you can fill your karma bank. You do them even without thinking because you follow Jesus where he goes. And that's what Jesus would have you do. Love and obedience. Are they that different? No. They aren't. So you delight in the word of God because Jesus is the word and because Jesus would have you delight in the word. And the word is a double-edged sword, which means that you also delight in the law just as much as you delight in the gospel. Don't be afraid of the law. It's all the word of God. And it's all the character of God. Okay? Uh, so the reason that you do this is because you know that love is the foundation of the word. You know that God loves you, that God has given his word to you because he loves you, that God is going to take care of you. Live your life recognizing that as long as Jesus is with you, that you'll never be alone, you'll never be unloved, you'll always have an advocate. And even as bad as things will start to go in your life, you know that Jesus is never going to hurt you. So even when your best friends do, you know that you can still keep following Jesus because he's always going to take care of you. Um, yeah. So it's a lot about love. This is the whole... If you really want to think about explanations and get down to the nitty-gritty here, the whole idea of, well, we're going to love Christ because he first loves us, it's, that's what this all is. It's like the order of divine service. What is worship? What is the direction of worship? You don't come to church to praise God. Now our evangelical brothers and sisters do. Why am I going to go to church? Well, I'm going to go to church because I'm going to praise God. Now you do praise God, and that's great. But your primary goal when you come here is not praising God. The rhythm of Worship is always from God first to you. It's called divine service for a reason. Because every time you come here, it's coming to the upper room. Jesus is going to take off your sandals. He's going to wash your feet. And then he's going to feed you supper. Every time you're coming back to the upper room, where he washes his disciples' feet, he forgives them, he talks to them a little bit, and then he gives them some supper. That's what it is. That's worship. Divine service. Why? Because the divine comes to serve you. The rhythm of worship is from God to you. And then, and only then, can it go from you back to God. You don't say thank you before you've been given a gift. You say thank you after. The gift has to first be given before you can say thank you. The, first, the gift must first be given before you can extol the name of the one who has given it. Well, love is the same way. You don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, boy, oh, boy, I sure love Jesus today. I can't believe I made that decision all by myself, and I made myself feel so much love for Jesus. You can't do it, and you never will. Christ loves you. And in the love that Christ has for you, which is also seen in the Word, it instills in you and creates in you a new love because you're becoming a new person. So Romans chapter 6, then, is the next spot we're going to briefly 
scam here. You live differently. The law orders your life. What shall we say then? I'm just going to read this because I want to make a point quickly. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Now, the, the Greek here is kind of funny. Certainly not is a fine translation, but it's sort of prim and proper, and I don't... Sometimes prim and proper translations are not the best. They're very polite, but sometimes Jesus isn't polite. Sometimes the word of God isn't polite. Pastor, yes. you're talking about the beginning of verse 2 there. Yeah. Yeah, mine says, by no means. Yep, yep, by no means. That's another sort of polite one. It's sort of like, I don't know, Victorian-era England with the man in his top hat and his coat, and he says, ah, oh, certainly not. By no means. Good gravy. You know, it's that sort of, it's too polite. Um, what it really says is basically, it basically says, hell no. Okay? So, St. Paul's saying, are we going to live like this? May God forbid it. Hell no, we're not going to live like this. That's what it is. It's not polite, which is why it's not rendered that way in your translation. The Bible's got to be uh, child-friendly, so we need to, you know, give them the, the G-rated version. But that speaks to a lot. Um, the... The life that you used to live is not an acceptable life to continue living, which is why there's, the Christian life is always one of struggle, of setbacks, of battle, of striving, of looking ahead and striving toward the goal, of looking towards the holy things of God and striving always to go to the holy things of God, to touch the holy things of God, to live among the holy things of God, and to shun the evil things. Um, so, here's, an, here's a really good example. There's a whole mentality, and this is a modern, well, we're seeing the fruits of this plague in the modern era, of Christians who play the victim card, who fall into grave public sin, and then weep about it and confess their sins publicly and make a big deal about it and then go back to living their life as if nothing happened. And their excuse for that is, well, you know, I'm a sinner, but I know I'm forgiven in Jesus, so the things that I've done, they don't matter because I'm still forgiven. But I'm a real sinner, so I can't help that I do those things. Well, not exactly correct. Not exactly an acceptable thing to say. Here's a really good example. There is a pastor that I know. And he talks all about, and this is commendable, all about how, well, when people come to my church that are not members of my church, I always want to talk to them. And if I find out that they're from another church, then I will try to get them to go back there, especially if there are hard feelings. Or I'll call their pastor and try and work something out to make sure that they're taken care of and that whatever problems they have are put to rest. And I remember thinking, hey, that's commendable because most pastors don't do that. But then he said something that shocked me. And he said, except for those Roman Catholics. Boy, I hate their guts. 
Boy, I can't stand those Roman Catholic priests. And if a Roman Catholic comes to my church, I'm not going to try and get them to go back to their home church. I'm just going to make sure I take them. And I know I shouldn't hate those Catholics, but it's okay because I know I'm forgiven in Jesus. Well, you heard it, folks. If you want to hate somebody, it's okay because you know you're forgiven in Jesus anyway. Tell that to the police, Gregory, when they come to your door asking you about that bank you robbed. <laughs> it's never going to die. It's never going to die. When they knock on the door and they say, Mr. Beerman, we've caught you on surveillance. That wasn't smart, Greg. <laughs> we've caught you on surveillance. We know you did it. And you say, well, okay, you got me. I did it, but it doesn't matter because I'm forgiven in Jesus. I mean, are they going to go, oh, you're forgiven in Jesus. Oh, well, then it's all okay. Just keep the money. <laughs> That's all fine. Have a great day. <laughs> They're not going to care. The irons are going to come on. Okay? Because there are consequences for sin. You don't get to continue living your life the way that you used to live it. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, it's, God's going to forgive me, so it's okay if I do what I want to do anyway. It's shocking that Christians would believe that that's something that's okay. You have a new life, and your life is ordered in a certain way. You are not what you used to be. You've been transformed. And your entire life as a Christian is a continual life of transformation. Every time you come here, every time you take in some of Jesus' body and blood, you're being reworked a little bit. The bomb is coming in. It's leveling the landscape that you've built for yourself. And it's trying to create a new landscape, a new ecosystem, a new little Garden of Eden in you. Every time you come here, you're getting a vaccine. You're getting a vaccine that's going to inoculate you against the diseases of the world that you're going to encounter and give you a fighting chance to live in the midst of all of that and still actually live. Okay? So your life is ordered a certain way and the word of God, the law, helps you to order your life. It helps you to see where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? So this is the thing then. The Ten Commandments, they tell you, they tell you a few things. And this is... Um, in some ways, it's beneath the surface of what, if you just opened your text to Exodus and you looked at the Ten Commandments and you said, oh, okay, I'm reading the Ten Commandments. It's beneath the level of the text itself. But at the same time, it's right there on the surface for you to see. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has eyes to see, let him see. Okay, this is what I'm talking about. Uh, and that is, um, there is such a thing as good, and conversely, there is such a thing as evil. So why do I keep telling you to touch holy things and to shun evil things? Well, you touch holy things and you uh, take in a little Jesus. Good incarnates good. When you go and you touch evil, when you participate in evil, it incarnates evil within you. You're basically opening the door to evil and saying, hey, you look like a cool fella, come on in. And it's not good for you. And you know, basically my job is uh, to prepare you for death 
and while you are living and while I prepare you for death, I want you to live the best life that you can, which means I want you uh, to find the things that are good for you and stay away from the things that are bad for you because Jesus and I want the same thing. Okay? So the Ten Commandments tell you the, this thing, that there is such a thing as good and evil. And it tells you what evil is and it tells you what good is. But it also directs you. It helps you to order your life because it directs you to the place where good can be found and it directs you away from the place where evil is found. Uh, don't cross this line. No photos beyond this line. Don't touch the shotgun. You start to see it. It's directing you towards the things that are good for you. The thing that is good for you, Mr. Heidman, is not to touch that gun because something bad might happen. So I'm steering you away. The good thing for you, O oh tourist, is not to fall off the edge of the Grand Canyon. So I am directing you away from the edge. I'm directing you to the place of safety. And when you start heading into the place of danger, the bells start ringing, the flags start waving, and the law says, no, 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 away from that, away from that. So it's always directing you to some place and away from another place. Okay? And basically then, um, to love the law, to live as a Christian, to follow Jesus, is as simple as this. Trust the promises of God. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He's always going to be with you. He's never going to hurt you. So trust in him and follow where he goes. And that's the bottom line. Questions? Okay, we're running late, and as usual, and I need to clean stuff up and uh, get stuff ready for a baptism today. So... Um, I don't know, some stranger. <laughs> okay, so last call for questions if you have them. Don't feel rushed, I'll answer it, but I'll answer it quickly. Okay, I'll see you at the high altar. <laughs>